Welcome to Future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, and together we'll explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Future of XYZ is presented in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. I'm super excited about this one. Uh, we are talking about a subject that's quite fascinating and quite majestic, the future of Mount Everest. And joining us is Ben Ayers. Ben is um, a documentary filmmaker. We'll get to talk about some of his films and National Geographic Explorer, as well as the Everest correspondent for Outside Magazine, which, of course, gives him incredible credibility. But more than that, he's uh, been living in Nepal, which is one of the sides of Everest um, off and on since uh, the late 1990s when we went to Bates College together. Um, ben, thanks so much for joining us at uh, Future of XYZ. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's nice to uh, nice to be reconnected after so many years. It is indeed. Well, you've been doing super interesting work since then. Uh, it's it's rather awe inspiring, as is the mountain we're speaking about. Um, I want to start, as I always start these episodes, with you know grounding in what are we talking about. And in this case, I'd love you to describe Mount Everest to us. Yeah, I mean, it's a obviously that's a large monument, large mountain to describe in short form. Um, I think for me, you know, Mount Everest is occupies a place in the global imagination as the tallest point on earth. For me, I very much see Mount Everest having lived underneath it for many years, having spent a lot of time researching. I've never climbed it, but I've spent a lot of time at base camp and running around there and being a part of the mountaineering industry. Um, I see it actually as a as a cultural icon, I see it in the context of the Sherpa community and the people who live around it. And, and in that regard, it takes on many different dimensions than just um, a peak that you try to get to the top to, you know, I mean, the, the Mount Everest has a number of local names that are less popular, you know, the, the Tibetan name for it and the, the name, you know, the Sherpa name for it is Cholmalungma, which is, um, goddess uh mother of the earth and the there's a nepali name for it sagarmatha the goddess mother of, of the ocean so for the local perspective they actually see it as a god or one of many mountain gods in the area um and something that's worthy of reverence and that's that that protects the people there so i see it in all of those dimensions i also see it as being sort of this totem uh as a as a westerner you know it, it also i understand it as this totem for ambition and in a way almost a metaphor for human aspiration and dare I say human ego. It's certainly a magnet for a certain type of climber and a certain type of person. And it's a fascinating lens into human nature, especially if you're there during the climbing season uh, in April and May. Well, I, that's a, it's a wonderful um, uh, point of view that's both scientific as, as the highest point above sea level on our planet, as well as obviously all the spiritual um, kind of background behind it. I, I think one of the interesting things and, you know, my very first internship when we were still at Bates was um, at the Museum of Tech in San Jose, California. And our our launch event actually, um, Tenzay Norgay was 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 there. Yeah. Um, which is amazing um, because Tenzing Norgay was the Tibetan Sherpa who climbed with Sir Edmund Hillary, a New Zealander, um, and explorer back in May of 1953 when they were the first to uh, officially to summit Mount Everest. Obviously, many people had tried prior and uh, hundreds and thousands have gone since, but they were the very first to summit. Um, 
there is so much that goes into being able to climb even to base camp, much less to summit in really short order, just to, again, kind of give us a lay of the land before we dive into the future of Mount Everest. What does it take to, to climb Everest? Well, so what it takes to climb Everest now in 2023 is very different than what it took for uh, Tenzing and, and Sir Ed, you know, back in 1953 or even the earlier expeditions. You know, we're coming up on the 100th year anniversary of Mallory and Irvine, which was a British expedition on the north side. And these two climbers disappeared heading for the summit um, in June of 1924. So there's a long history of climbing on the mountain. Those early expeditions embody, I think, what we all think of with Mount Everest, where they were months walk away from medical care. There was no helicopter rescue. There was no uh, espresso at base camp. They were the true embodiment, I think, of adventure. That adventure did have sort of a colonial aspect to it, which we'll set aside for now. But climbing Everest in 2023, 2024, what that requires now is you need to have a pretty decent bank account. Um, an Everest at Average Everest expedition is going to cost you somewhere in the realm of fifty to seventy up to a hundred thousand dollars, depending plus on travel, plus gear, et cetera, plus all the other things, depending on the level of uh, comfort and safety. And unfortunately, it does depend on the price tag. Um, and then what it what it requires is basically you know you sign up with an expedition operator who. Ideally, many, most of the operators, you know, do have requirements. You have to show some mountaineering experience. You can't be totally green. But there are instances where people who have zero climbing experience are learning how to put on crampons at 18,000 feet at Everest Base Camp. And basically, the way the mountain works now is there's very, very few. I mean, literally maybe one person a year will try to do a route that's different than the conventional route. And... um there are two main ways up. It one is from the north side on the um, on the Tibetan side, which is a longer oh, climb. Is Chinese, no. Which is Chinese Tibetan, yeah, exactly. Um, Tibetan Autonomous Region. Um, that route is longer, um, but safer. There's less objective danger, less things to fall on you or avalanches to sweep you away. Uh, but it's less popular because the Chinese government uh, is less reliable, or they're more you know, they'll close down for COVID. They'll shut down the climbing season weeks before it happens. For them, it's it's a less uh, it's a it's less of an economic priority. On the Nepal side, it's much more commercialized. There's one main route, and that route, you know, sees the majority of climbers. Last year, there was something in the neighborhood of 400 clients climbing Everest, and then to support them, there was a you know a you know another seven eight hundred local workers trying to to support that infrastructure. It's and, in billions uh, of dollars for the for the Nepalese tourism board who's issuing permits every year. So it's a main driver of revenue, not to mention. And I want to talk about the Sherpas and the other mm. kind of high high altitude uh, support system um, locally. But yeah, that's that's kind of remarkable, actually. I mean, it is when you look at a country like Nepal that is you know still in the developing nation status. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. So having a multi million dollar revenue generator is important. Um, and so the, one of the challenges that you see, um, operating on the, on the South side of Nepal, that's the opposite of the Chinese government is that there's very little regulation and very little control of the number of people on the mountain or steps put in place to ensure the safety 
uh, of the climbers and the workers there. And that's one of the main challenges faced um, within the industry right now. Well, I mean, I, I, it's, it's there, this can go in so many directions, but let's, let's jump into that conservation piece. Cause that's something that is profound. I mean, we've all seen the images. I think it was in 2022, right at the end of the COVID when you had this like just line of climbers going up, but we're also hearing about like the thousands of tons of waste that are left behind, both in terms of food waste, empty oxygen tanks and cartridges, you know, torn tents, ropes, whatever. Um, not to mention the 200 plus or so bodies that are are, are left and can't be recovered of, of past climbers who didn't make it either up or, or back down. Right. Um, what kind of conservation efforts are underway? What are kind of the, what kind of risk mitigation for the future can, can a, a developing country like Nepal that is, uh, you know, kind of organizing this uh, take on? I mean, who are the partners that are necessary? What's happening? Yeah, I mean, there isn't, it's not being done in a way that is incredibly efficient or thorough. Um, what's what's happening is most of the cleanup efforts on the mountain are happening through sort of volunteer efforts. Certain expeditions go up with a mandate. You know, we're doing an Everest cleanup every year. There's a few people who are doing an Everest cleanup expedition. The Nepal Army every year mounts an expedition that goes up and is taking um, and it, it is taking materials down from the higher camps that have been left there for years and years. Um, and what that does is actually it pays the Sherpa workers who are carrying oxygen, tents, food supplies up, but coming down empty, then they get paid to bring stuff down off the mountain. And then there's a group also at base camp called the Sagamatha Pollution Control Committee. It's a local NGO. And they're monitoring, they're weighing the amount of gear an expedition's bringing in. They're weighing the amount that they're bringing out to make sure that people aren't leaving their trash on the mountain. But it's not a perfect system. And the reason that, you know, Nepal gets this or Everest gets this reputation of being, quote, the world's highest trash dump, unquote, it's just that the simple fact is it's very hard to exist, even with all the technology now, all the fixed ropes, all the high flow oxygen systems. So you're still at 8,000 meters. Every cell in your body is trying to convince you to go down and not die. It's so difficult to operate and function at that height, um, you just don't have the energy to pack up your tent and take it down with you. You don't necessarily have the energy to pick up the empty oxygen canister. It's basically, like Everest's peak is actually in the stratosphere. We're out of the atmosphere. Correct. We're in the stratosphere. So actually you're at what, I don't know what it is, a third or something of like the normal yeah, oxygen levels that yeah. we, we have. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, up it's called the above 8,000 meters is called the death zone because sort of technically speaking uh you just start dying when you get to that altitude and um and basically you know you reach the summit and then you have to get back down to lower altitude before um before your body turns hypoxic and you know with oxygen systems you can sort of effectively I'm simplifying this, but like lower that altitude by supplementing the oxygen that you're taking in, but it's still extremely difficult to function in those environments, not to mention the cold and the wind and storms, et cetera. So the idea of, for example, removing a body from above 8,000 meters where there's a lot of bodies because that's a place where it's very easy to die, um, it's an endeavor, you know, it's difficult for, you know, ambulance crews to remove 
a body from a house in Brooklyn. Um, if you can imagine trying to do that from 26,000 feet, um, it gives you an idea of, of why that trash accumulates there. So it, it takes a superhuman effort. Um, and I don't say that lightly to actually do those cleanup campaigns. And that's why it's so difficult um, to, to actually, actually effectively clean that up. And then you have climate change, which is melting a lot of the ice and a lot of the, the glaciers and the snow that's been up on Everest, which is actually uncovering generations right. of stuff. Almost a hundred years, basically. Of- yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, you've, you're, besides the work that you do at Outside Magazine and, and, and Nat Geo, you also have, you founded when you went after college, uh, an, a, a nonprofit that was really helping the Sherpa community. You took on um, executive directorship at another nonprofit that's working in local communities really to kind of help build, build up some of the infrastructure and, and build a better future. I mean, let's talk about the, the Sherpas for a second and not only perhaps the Sherpas, obviously the, historically the Sherpas are the, the indigenous tribe that lived closest to Everest on the Nepalese side. But there are now many indigenous and peoples who are helping in this effort because it's so popular and becomes so commercialized and there's money to be made where there isn't necessarily elsewhere. Um, I mean, you're a storyteller. You've you've directed and produced a number of films based on the trust that you've built within these communities of telling stories. What is it like to be both witness to the change that's happening as well as to kind of be the white voice that gets to amplify and hopefully empower these these less, you know, um, l- more marginalized voices, I guess I'd say, but who are so intricately um, uh, linked to this ecosystem of, of adventuring, for lack of a better word. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, what's it like? It's it's exhilarating and confusing uh, in, in the sense that I think I think it's very easy for and I mentioned earlier sort of, you know, the original expeditions were were actually, you know, very explicitly colonial. These were run by colonial governments. The, you know, the, the first ascent of the Everest. British and the yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The first ascent of Everest was in the same week as I think Queen Elizabeth's coronation. Right. And it was very much seen as this triumph of this, the, the, the very much the apex of the British Empire. And, um, and, and so those were the, the origins of it. What you have now is somewhat of an economic colonialism where I think a lot of people come to Nepal and the economy there is a service economy. And you have this idea, you know, that the, a lot of people get confused by the word Sherpa. Is it a job title or is it a last name? You know, and in, in many extent it's both, you know, the, the ethnic Sherpa people, um, have lived in the Everest region for hundreds and hundreds of years. But there is this idea that Westerners have of the happy, helpful, strong, poor Sherpa that's going to carry your stuff. And like, you know, and there's tons of companies out there like, oh, I'm your business Sherpa. Right. I'm your, pla-. you know, what people use that. appropriated. It's like Kleenex. It's a what? brand. Exactly. And the reason I bring that up is that there is something that's intoxicating for foreigners when you travel to a place like Nepal where your life is at risk and there's people who are incredibly spiritual, who are happy, who are capable and who work really cheap for you. And it's intoxicating and people suddenly sort of feel a certain sense of agency there that can actually distract you from seeing what's really happening and being a good listener. And so I guess to answer your question for me, having lived my whole adult life in Nepal, 25 years now, 
um, and have been a storyteller and have been someone who's been trying to be a part of making, helping contribute positively to life in Nepal. It's, um, you have to unpack a lot of your own biases and your own privilege. And that's been an honor and a privilege for me to be able to do that there. And I think what it is, is, you know, it, it's taught me to be just really a good listener and to try to keep a lot of my own opinions out of it. And when you can start to do that, and when you can start to win trust of people, uh, as I mentioned earlier, of all these different ways of looking at Mount Everest, a very fascinating world starts to emerge. And I've been very, very fortunate. And that's why I'm still there, is that there's an infinite amount of learning and discovery that happens um, within something as simple, perhaps, as Mount Everest. You actually can find all of the stories of human nature and all the stories of the history of the world can be seen within that microcosm. And it's a great honor to be a part of that. I'm very grateful for Nepali culture and all of you know the people in Nepal who have so openly shared that with me over the years. It's, it, it's quite remarkable. And I know your your third film is coming out in January of 2024. Um, so in just a couple of months from now, uh, it's called The Snow Leopard Sisters. But your, your, your first, you, I won't get into all your films because it's not really material, but the first one was in fact um, uh, a really kind of, I mean, you won dozens of independent film awards. Um, you actually qualified in the short film category for an Academy Award. I mean, it's it's quite a feat. And I think it speaks largely to what you're talking about, which is this ability to listen and translate and amplify voices that aren't necessarily otherwise heard. And that was called The the Last Honey Hunter, about a, a, a Nepalese uh, honey hunter who seeks out this um, uh, hallucinogenic honey, I guess, on the cliff sides. And there's this fabulous picture of you guys that anyone can Google, like hanging in bee suits, like from the the ropes, the climbing ropes with cameras. I mean, it's 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 quite remarkable. I mean, I think I bring this up because there is an adventuring spirit in all of what you're talking about, whether we're talking about Everest, whether we're talking about living in Nepal, whether we're talking about storytelling with indigenous people or, you know, hanging from the cliffside in a bisu with cameras. Um, all of this is true. What I find really interesting, I mean, there is a one in 100 chance, actually 1.2 in 100 chance that someone who attempts to climb Everest based on the statistics is going to die. I mean, people are putting themselves at risk every time they do it. And as Tenzing Norgay's son said recently, it's incredibly irresponsible for these people who are learning at base camp to put crampons on, right? I mean, they're not they're not qualified, let's call it, and it puts lots of other people at risk too. That said, there are people who are not just mountaineering on this mountain anymore. There are base jumpers, there are there are oh, sure. seniors, there are you know, snowboards. I mean, people have now done this, and there seems to be this expanding adventure ethos i mean the woman the, the nepali woman actually who who has gone and tried to attempt to climb all 14 of the world's tallest peaks in seven months i mean i think you you've you know i don't know whether you worked on that film or whether you just know that film but it's it's 14 peaks is telling the story of this kind of ambition you spoke to it before this ego this ambition this kind of almost commercial drive um to adventure um mm -hmm. I, paragliding. I mean, I just think about all the things of crazy people. And I, I love the extreme sports thing, but like, I, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around. But again, there is an impact of these kinds of statistics and these kind of pushing the envelope experiences, both on the industry, on the nation that hosts it, as well as obviously coming back to that local community. Um, sure. how, how does this kind of sense of, I mean, you're, you're an outdoors guy. I mean, you've, 
you know, you've done all sorts of different cool things uh, in your lifetime. And I think your ethos has always been about adventure and outdoors. How, how do yeah. you reconcile these kinds of al almost um, contrary ideas of like pushing for ego and and recognition versus kind of the beauty and majesty of being able to conquer the outdoors? Well, and that's the that is the the paradox of the modern climbing industry and it's it and i guess of the climbing industry in general i think we there's a, there's something there's a heroism that we see in these noble slightly suicidal people who push themselves to the extreme limits to accomplish something that is ultimately pointless you get to the top of everest you have to go right back down to where you started and right back to your house in you know vermont and resume your normal life. And, and the 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 summit is apparently only the size of like a dining room table. Like barely six yeah. people can stand there at the same time. Yeah, and it's not pleasant. It's not like you're going to get there and like you know sunbathe, right? It's it's suffering. And anybody who is who you know high altitude mountaineering is just extended suffering. That's not fun in like a beach vacation kind of way. It's what we call type two fun, right? Which is fun after you're done you look back on it and you think god you know and that's all that's all ego and and what the paradox that i that i'm referring to is is that our world idolizes people who do these things but but then of course as our world grows smaller um these things become safer they become more accessible and people then either push the envelope so what used to be climbing Everest used to be when there when when only a few people could ever have raised the money and 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 gone through you know it used to and the expeditions used to take months and months and months and you'd have you know four hundred Sherpas for one Everest expedition just carrying stuff up to base camp and then you had it was these army like assaults and you know now climbing Everest for the real egoists isn't enough and now the now the game is climbing all 14 8,000 meter peaks um, made popular by this uh, British in British Nepali Nims Perja and in, in, in this Netflix film 14 peaks and now you know he did it in just over six months Kristen Harila a Norwegian woman who from the beginning said I am not a climber she is a paying client she paid somebody to create the logistics for her to break that record in just over three months that just happened, right? That just happened. Yeah. And she and then she said, I'm never going to climb again. And she's moving on to, you know, public speaking and other things. But we have this idea, but the the commercialization and the commodification of adventure has in, to some extent undermined the very thing that created that idea. And it's all about business. If you look at it, you know, what's happening and 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 so what's happening in the mountaineering industry now in a nutshell is that People still hold these proud original adventures in their mind. But the reality is, is you're having cappuccino and cheese pizza at Everest Base Camp in a heated tent while you're waiting for an army of Sherpas to fix the ropes up. If you die on Mount Everest right now, you're not necessarily dying because you're not a good outdoorsman or mountaineer. You're dying because you're in a line on a fixed rope and the people in front of you may not be capable enough to move forward and you're stuck and then you're stuck when a storm comes it's not about this idea of an wow. individual capability it's it's maybe you maybe you signed up 
for the wrong with the wrong company or you signed up for the wrong time, you know, and you went up oh. at the wrong time. So, and that's not just Everest now. That's that's expanding across all of all of the eight thousand meter peaks. And the real climbing that's happening in the world right now, if you're looking at climbing as an art form, is happening on lower peaks, much, much harder ascents. People are pushing their physical abilities and their technical abilities as climbers um, way beyond the limits of what was possible in, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and nobody knows about it. Nobody cares. And those people are what you think of when you think of a climber. You know, they're they're sort of very, very passionate dirtbags with no budget that are out there doing actual real adventure and exploration. But it's not popular and it's not economical. Hmm. So that that gets left out. And and so right now we're in this moment of Everest climbing, I think. I, I think what will happen in the next five to 10 years is people will stop recording 8,000 meter ascents, um, meaning it's sort of like Mount Washington in New Hampshire. You don't, you know, there's no no one's keeping a database of whether or not you went up there with your friends and your dog on a weekend. And that will probably start to happen uh, on these, on the world's highest peaks now. That's wild. I, well, you, you answered the second to last question I always ask, well, what do you think it will happen in the next five to 10? But what's your greatest hope specifically for Mount Everest in let's call it 20 years time? You know, my, well, I'm going to, I'm going to short circuit your question. I'm going to talk about the next few years. One of the hopes that I have for Mount Everest is that what we're what you're starting to see now in the industry is it used to be an industry dominated by white climbers and Western expedition operators. They were the only ones who had the know-how and the wherewithal to be on the mountain. Over the past 10 years, that's totally shifted. And the Nepali climbers that learned from the Westerners are now running the industry. And actually, that's what's allowed those 14 peak ascents to happen because they've been innovating and finding ways to get people to the top faster, more safely. Um, and while some people say, oh, it's not climbing, it's not ethical. Like one of the new techniques that came out this year is they're actually helicoptering Sherpa climbers to higher camps and they rappel down to fix the ropes. Way safer. Everyone gets to the top. Their clients get what they paid for. But then there's a bunch of old white people that are grumpy because it didn't go from the top to the bottom, which is true, which isn't, I don't know. But what I hope is that in the next few years, we'll start to see the recognition of the innovation and the strength of the Nepali workers on the mountain. And those stories come to the forefront and not just the stories of Western climbers like Harila and others who are essentially paying for their glory and paying for their expeditions. I think it's more interesting. And I think that there are really amazing stories about the people actually who are working to make all that possible. In, in 20 years, I hope that there, I hope that then Everest becomes a commodity that is scarce. And I hope that there are regulations in place where only a few people climb it every year. It's a true privilege and it costs an enormous amount of money. So it still has the same economic impact for the communities that it does now. Um, ben Ayers, explorer, uh, adventurer, documentary filmmaker, humanitarian. Thanks so much. Uh, and Bobcat alumni. <laughs> Thank you. Go Bobcats. Go Bobcats. Thank you so much for joining us today on Future of XYZ for a really fascinating and um, wide-ranging conversation about the future of Mount Everest. Thanks, Lisa. It was a, it was a great pleasure.
Um, for everyone watching and listening, thank you. Uh, if you are watching, you can find this anywhere you get your favorite podcasts as well. And if you are listening and didn't know you can watch, please visit our presenting partner, Rhode Island PBS at ripbs.org forward slash XYZ. Uh, you can check out all of our uh, season four, meaning 2023 episodes. Um, and you can also follow us on on uh, Instagram at Future of XYZ. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time. Ben Ayers, thank you again for joining us. Thanks a lot. Take care.